Welcome to the Coaching DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Wyckoff. I'm also the founder of Kingdom Coaching, my consulting business in which I coach leaders. This week, my guest is Andy McKay. Andy is the assistant general manager of the Seattle Mariners. During part one, Andy and I discuss his admiration and what he learned from Jerry Weinstein, commonalities and differences of elite leaders, the time it takes to become a really good leader, and much, much more. Andy is extremely sharp, thoughtful, and very curious. And because of this, this was a wide-ranging one-hour and 40-minute conversation. And so I have decided to break this up into three episodes. This was one of my favorite conversations I've had, and I hope this stirs up your curiosities. So without further ado, my conversation with Andy McKay. Andy, thanks for carving some space for us uh, to visit. Really appreciate it. Why don't you walk us through your journey from high school to present day? Sure. Yeah, and of course, and, uh, you know, uh, thanks for having me on. I I follow your work, and um, we obviously have a couple of uh, mutual contact points, and um, I'm a fan of what you're doing. So thanks. happy to be able to participate and help um, however I can. So, um yeah, I went to high school in Sacramento, California. Um, um, high school baseball was was just okay. I was a, a very average player, um, even at the high school level. And, um, you know, had a, had a unique situation where I was, uh, we had a, a, like a dominating type of Legion program um, that I was able to get connected into and uh, made the teams, didn't play a lot but these were like national championship type of programs. And this was in uh, the late eighties and, and uh, really, really foundational to me in terms of figuring out how to win and what it, what it took to win baseball games. Um, and that, that path started something that I didn't really, I, I couldn't have predicted at the time, but that led me to Sacramento city college uh, which at the time was arguably the best community college baseball program in America. And again, good enough to make the team, not good enough to really play a lot, but part of, um, you know, incredibly winning, consistently winning environments. Um, coupled that with another summer league program, which was, I don't even know if it still exists, uh, Stan Musial Baseball um, we had this summer league. It was for basically college players and former professional players. And again, good enough to make the team, not good enough to play a lot, but, uh, summer would end every year in a, in a world series environment. And, um, you know, so that was three or four years of not playing a lot, but winning a lot and really beginning to understand uh, so many things from, you know, what wins a baseball game to how to run a team to leadership, um, that took me to the university of Tampa, uh, which, which is where it all kind of came to a screeching halt for me of, uh, good enough to make the team, um, not good enough to stay on the team. And about halfway through the season was asked to stop not playing and start coaching. I, I literally went from one day of 
I, I pinch hit in the end of a blowout game at Barry College in 1993 um, for my last at bat. And that night became our hitting coach. Um, and we won the national championship. We beat uh, Cal Poly. Um, they were still a Division II program at the time. And, and so just another example of I'm there, I'm, I'm watching a lot of winning. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing patterns. I'm understanding this. And, you know, went back home to Sacramento um, to start coaching at Sacramento City College with Jerry Weinstein. Um, you know, stayed in school, went to grad school. I got an MBA in, uh, in organizational behavior, which was, for the most part, leadership. Um, and spent roughly uh, five or six years there as Jerry's assistant, um, which at that time, I, I then met Ken Revisa. Um, and that combination of Jerry and Ken uh, working as just pure mentors for me in, in every facet of the game uh, was such a, a life-changing thing that at the time, you don't understand how powerful it is or how long these things are going to stay with you. And did that until 1999, I became the head coach at uh, Sacramento City College and began teaching. And I spent uh, I want to say it was 14 years, um, as the head coach and also teaching performance psychology, um, in the classroom. And during that time, um, I went out and I coached in the Cape Cod league. I coached in the Alaskan summer league. I coached in the Northwoods league. Um, and that led me to the Colorado Rockies in 2000 and 12, I believe, uh, where Dan O'Dowd hired me uh, to kind of take over their performance psych department, uh, which was a great job. We had a really good thing going on there with um, just a lot of players at the time that, again, I didn't know how much they were teaching me, but, you know, guys like Nolan Arenado in the minor leagues and Trevor Story in the minor leagues and, uh, Corey Dickerson and Charlie Blackman and DJ LeMayhew, uh, guys that I was working with a lot um, as minor league players um, and really getting to observe. Um, tremendous learning time for me. Um, still consider Dan to be a, a, a true mentor to me. Uh, that took me to the Mariners in uh, fall of 2015 to become their director of uh, player development, where I did that job for. I guess seven years, and then uh, currently in my first month as the uh, assistant general manager. So, love it. Thanks for walking us through that. Did you have a? Um, were you into the mental side of the game, the sports psychology, prior to running into Ken Revisa? Did that? Is that where it started? No, it was really interesting. Uh, late eighties. Want to say it was the fall of eighty nine. Um, again pre-internet, pre-cell phone. Um, we had a theory of baseball class. I was a freshman at City College. Mondays was theory of baseball. And um, Harvey Dorfman had just written his first book, uh, The Metal Game of Baseball. Mm. And I remember getting this, we had this like Xerox copy of, you have to call this phone number, you have to get a credit card. And you can order the book and you need the book for the class. 
And um, we spent, you know, the fall working through that book as a team. And it was just so impactful because it, it was like it was it was articulating these things that all of us knew and all of us felt, but none of us knew how to put into words and how to take any type of action on it. And uh, I remember very clearly in this class, um, which was basically our team sitting in the stands, um, the pro players who had been part of our program who are now coming back, suddenly showing up on Mondays to sit in on this, in this environment. Mm. And it was just a chance for, you know, a couple hours a week for everyone to talk about the mental aspects of the game that nobody was doing well with, like everybody was struggling with these things and everybody could understand it, but couldn't explain it and certainly couldn't articulate it or put it into any type of usable curriculum until Harvey kind of took a stab at it um, with that first book. And then he obviously followed up with multiple books afterwards, but very quickly after that uh, got introduced to Ken who was beginning to make some waves. Um, You know, he was very attached with Joe Madden and the angels at this time, all in the minor leagues, Uh, Marcel Latchman at the time. Um, And then, you know, that relationship with Augie Garrido brought Ken into college baseball um, at Cal State Fullerton, which is where Ken was lecturing. And I really was like the most fortunate person in the world to be sitting there in the kind of the middle of all of this when it was starting to come to the forefront a little bit at the time. Now, I say that it's like 35 years later we're still struggling to, to really uh, make headway in this, in this field. Um, Cause it is so layered and, and context dependent and it's um, it's, it's really hard, but um, yeah, that's how I kind of ran into Ken and yeah. not knowing at the time, but I mean, Ken took me under his wing and he was so incredibly great. I mean, just anything I asked uh, the answer was always yes. Um, I took so much of his time and, um, and it wasn't until he passed away that I really, through meeting people that I began to understand he was like this with everybody. Mm -hmm. And this relationship that I had with him really wasn't all that unique. He was doing it with people all over the country, um, which was really, uh, just fascinating to understand that. What, what'd you learn from, uh, Jerry Weinstein? Specifically on the area. How of, much time do you have? Yeah, no doubt. Let's <laughs> let's take the on the field, the catching, you know, all his yeah. stuff. Let's take that away. Let's talk leadership with him. Yeah. What did you learn from him in that regard? Oh man, um, the unwavering high standards. Um, you know, and, and coaching has evolved in a lot of ways. Things that we all did in the '80s, you're not doing today, um, and a lot of for, for good reasons. But. Um, when you went to practice for Jerry, even as a coach, because I coached with him for a long time too, like it was on and he didn't miss anything. And there was, everything was, the truth was always told, you know, and, and it was never good enough. The goalposts kept moving and, um, 
you were chasing that that standard that you could never actually catch. Um, and that was my biggest takeaway. And so many things that I was taking from Jerry that 30 years later are buzzwords. Mm. Like you got to get out of your comfort zone. Well, I'm playing or coaching for Jerry there. It never, there was a, there wasn't a comfort zone to get out of <laughs> because you were always being pushed and you were always being challenged and it was never good enough. And at the same time, you felt how much he loved you and that why he was doing it. And it wasn't for many, many years, um, having played for him and then coached for him that I really began to understand this is John Wooden on a baseball field. And then beginning to really go back and realize Jerry overlapped with John as the freshman baseball coach at UCLA. And, you know, Jerry had a front row seat to watching John Wooden run basketball practices. Hmm. And as I began reading all of John's stuff, I'm like, Hey, he took that from Jerry, you know, as a, as a young place, he's like, man, that's it. I'm like, Oh no, maybe it didn't work that way. <laughs> maybe it worked <laughs> the way. other way. But um, so again, just those, those moments of like, wow, I get to spend 10 years being mentored by somebody who is directly being influenced by John Wooden. Hmm. Like what are the odds? But again, back to your question, it was that, it was that high standard that it just didn't deviate. And we never even said the word process, but it was, it didn't matter if you did it, if how the result was, the only thing that mattered was if you were supposed to get in and out of the batter's box and take a controlled deep breath, inhale, exhale, and you didn't do it, you were going to hear about it. Even if you hit a double, you know, there was a way to play catch. There was a, there was a standard, which we now call the process, you know, that, that Nick Saban really um, um, illustrated so clearly for all of us, but Jerry, was, it, it was, it was that, and it was the preparation that he was not going to bring something to you unless he had understood it inside and out and was ready to share it with you. Um, the most prepared man you could ever possibly meet. And then three was that growth mindset. Again, we never called it a growth mindset, never even heard the term growth mindset, but every book was going to be read and dissected and shared with the team. Every conference was going to go and have, he was going to attend it. He was going to come back with notes and share it with the team. He would go out and he would coach the Olympic team and be around Skip Bertman and would come back with yellow legal pads of notes to share with the team. It was the, and it was this dichotomy of the most confident man in the world with a presence to, to hold a room's attention. Like you could never imagine. And then simultaneously realize it's not good enough and he's going to have a better way to do it tomorrow. Um, So I know that's a lot, but that was, those are things I think about with Jerry. Yeah, wow, that's impressive. I had, you know, you, you, you. I've seen him on Twitter, and and obviously heard the name, but I didn't know. Yeah, I had never really been around anyone that's been around him. That's impressive. On, um, yeah, the combination of confident, 
own the room, but yet humility enough to know that there's there's got to be a better way. I'm, I need to keep keep learning for a better way. Yeah. And at the time, I don't know that I would have classified Jerry with humility. I do now yep. because I'm just older and I see things a little bit differently. Um, supreme confidence. But again, it was coupled with, and this was another one that I can remember so clearly. Um, he was never above, and I, I'm speaking like he's dead. He's not. He's probably reading a book somewhere right now. I know he's getting ready to go to the ABCA convention. Um, he was never above learning from anybody. Mm. And, you know, he would go recruit at a high school and come back and be like, yeah, hey, you know, I, I watched these guys, how they were taking fly balls in the sun uh, as a drill. You know, we're not doing that enough. Things like that. And um, just the ultimate teacher and leader. And, and it's really unique as you bring that up. And obviously you're, you're getting an understanding for my uh, affinity for Jerry. Um, I, I read recently uh, Michael Lombardi, um, who was a former GM in the NFL, uh, talked about there's two qualities you have to have to be a head coach. You have to be a teacher and a leader. And I just read, I'm like, wow, yeah, that was Jerry Weinstein. That is Jerry Weinstein, you know, the ultimate teacher and the ultimate leader. That's cool. You mentioned uh, Dan O'Dowd with the Rockies. Sound like he yeah. was pretty impactful for you. What? Yeah. yeah. Give us insight into him. Same thing. Um, zero fear of telling you the truth. Um as blunt and direct as you could, as it could possibly, like you, you had to be tough to work for Dan. And it was hard. Same thing. You were never comfortable. Um, but you knew where it was coming from. It was coming from this incredible passion to be great. He wanted the Rockies to be great. Um, you know, I don't know that Dan will ever get the credit he deserves for taking the Rockies to the world series. Mm. Um, Cause that place is such a unique challenging place to win. Um, and he did get into the world series, but, uh, very, very smart, very driven, but he wanted that for you as well. And, you know, when I went to work for Dan, I had, I'd already worked for Jerry. So I developed the ability for some pretty firm, direct feedback. Um, and, and, and Dan would hit you between the eyes with it, but you knew, you knew it was coming from his heart and he was trying to help you. And as hard as it was, you always knew that. And, um, um, so with Dan, it was, just, it, it was that truth telling. It was that. Why would you ever hold something back that can help a player or a person develop? You know, you don't want them to like you and then not get better. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and Dan had been a farm director and he had worked his way up through a system. And, um, you know, that's what I would, that that's what I would remember from Dan was just the truth telling. Yeah. You've, you've obviously been around a, a ton of great leaders, a ton of, of managers in minor league. You've been around a ton. Are there, what are the, you, you mentioned the, the question spurred in my mind when you talked about Michael Lombardi talking about what he said, a teacher and a leader. Are there some commonalities that you see across the board of like the best leaders have these attributes or these behaviors? Yeah, I really don't. And, and I've studied this intensely my whole life, certainly my whole adult life. And um, 
you know, the only absolutes are there just, there are no absolutes. And, and I think this is something really important. I was just on a phone call before this podcast and I, I was talking about this exact subject in coaching, because we're so competitive, we're always very quick to say like, to just put thing people into like two buckets, they're good or they're bad. And, and I always bring up Pete Carroll and Harbaugh. Okay. Now I, I, I saw them competing against each other, Stanford and SC, San Francisco and Seattle. Uh, Pete's won Super Bowls. He's won a national championship. Uh, Harbaugh has been to a Super Bowl. He's back to a fourth and back to another final four. They are above critique of are they good or bad? They both clearly know what they're doing and they're polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing to critique about Nick Saban. There's nothing to critique about Kirby Smart, but there's a lot to learn from all of them. And so I think the one thing that I would, they are pretty genuine and authentic, like as, as leaders, you know who they are and you know what you're going to get. Mm. After that, I think anything is fair. And if you just, you know, if you, if, if you can look, if you can remove your own bias and just observe to learn and say, you know, what is it that Joe Madden did? He did some good things. What about Scott Service? What about Frank Kona? Okay. Um, Buck Showalter has now been a, a manager of the year in multiple decades, going back to the early Yankees dynasty, you know, that he was part of a building. I don't want to hear that, that, I don't want him ranked. I just want to study it and I want to pull something out of it and say, eh, that probably wouldn't be for me because it just wouldn't, I couldn't pull that off, but I do see that. And that's something that I probably should incorporate more or this is why, or, or what have you. So I, I, I really believe that I actually have a spreadsheet on my computer of um, tracking the, the, the trajectories of coaches, where they start. Um, and I do find some commonalities now, not in terms of, of, um, uh, characteristics, but it does take for the most part about 10 years for coaches to really start hitting their stride. Um, that that's a pretty, that's a, that does keep showing up, um, it's somewhere around 15-ish where they start doing things that make you remember them, mm. you know, of the great ones, right? Um, and then the ending is almost always bad, uh, which is, you know, I, I think if you're managing a career, you know, that that graceful exit is really tough for most people. Very few retire. Most are told, we don't need your services anymore. And those those commonalities they they thread through pretty consistently um you know if without with very few exceptions most of them have been fired hmm. you know and I, and i think that's going to happen even more and more as we just we're we're coaching in an era of just hyper focus um but those things are all real 
Um, yeah. And like I tell, you know, if, if Terry Francona and Joe Madden and, uh, you know, Jim Leland and all these great baseball, if they've gotten that phone call saying your service are no longer needed, you're probably going to get it to at some point. And that'll be another challenge for you to respond to that situation. And then what comes next? Because most of these people, their greatness, the things that really happened came after being let go. Yeah. From one position or another. Yeah, so. man, that's that's really interesting. Um, I got a couple of thoughts I want to throw out and love to get your your insight into these. So what, the first thing that popped into my mind when you talked about when I asked, are there commonalities? And you're like, man, I'm not sure. I don't think there are. Um, there's this, there's a guy named Scott Adams and he talks about skill stacking. Scott Adams is the creator of Delbert, the comic strip. And he wrote an article. Yep. I read it probably seven years ago about skill stacking and how leaders stack different skills. Like they have different things, different attributes that they stack. And if you look at, you know, to, to your point, you know, Pete Carroll is very different than Tony Dungy. There's just, they, they stack their skills in such a way that allow them to be really successful. And then the other thing I, I thought of when you were talking about this is this idea of compound growth. And like, so often we look at, um, you name the coach 15, 20 years into their career and you look at them and you're like, wow, they're awesome. I could never, ever imagine you know, being that successful or having those skills or, you know, whatever. And then you peel back the curtain and you look at it and it's like, oh, wow, they've been doing this day after day after day after day, month after month after month, year after year. They've stacked 15 to 20 really good years of learning and growth and to your point, tripping and falling and getting back up. And we forget, we look at the Tim Corbins of the world and like, oh, that guy's awesome. I could never do that. And it's like, man, he's been, he's been at it. He's has so many reps that compound growth grows. Love to hear your thoughts on any of that. Yeah, of course. And I, unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunate. I guess it feels like it is. I'm getting old and like, you know, I remember Tim as a, as a young assistant at Clemson. You know, I remember John Savage as a young assistant at Nevada Reno. Um, So I don't look at John or even Tim as being where they are now. I, I know their stories. Yep. Most people have a story. Um, and there's always exceptions. There's always outliers to, to everything. But coaching is no different than any other skill. You know, it takes time. It takes repetitions. And, you know, it takes repetitions to stand in front of a team and realize no one's listening to me. It takes repetitions to read body language and know, okay, I came in with plan A. I'm, I better pivot quickly here to plan B because this is going nowhere. Mm. It takes repetitions to realize, you know, I should have pushed harder there or I should have backed off. Um, and, and going back to what I was talking about, my, that spreadsheet that, I, that I'm building and, and that's all it is. It just takes time. Now, the context is the talent that you have on a team that can change things quickly yeah. and it can overcome a lot of your deficiencies as a head coach or a hitting coach or, or whatever. One thing I will tell you right now that I'm, I'm hyper-focused on is, is kind of that intellectual flexibility and adaptability because I look at the genesis of great coaches. And if you go back in time, 
the, the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of coaches, right? They were disciplinarians. And if you think about them, most of them came out of either fathers or coaches that had been in the military, World War II, um, and they coached multiple sports. Every great coach from that 60s and 70s all started as high school coaches who are coaching three sports, right? Mm. So, but that disciplinarian evolved into like a player's coach uh, through that late 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, where that connection with that player really kind of flipped a little bit, certainly in professional sports, mm. even more so. But now you're seeing college sports is mirroring professional sports and that with the NIL and yep. transfer portals and things like that. Now I see the job going. So you were, you were talking about the, the um, yeah, the disciplinarian to a player's coach transition. Yeah, now to this like collaborator where, yep. you know, certainly in a professional setting, you have a lot of people to answer to, um, including players, but staffs have grown exponentially. Um, Front offices have grown and you're no longer kind of that king of the castle. Mm. You're now kind of the point person for a lot of constituents. And and I don't think this is the last stop on the journey. I think it's going to continue to evolve. And um, certainly young coaches today are going to have to learn how to evolve, just like those of us who are still standing have learned to evolve um, through these different um, eras of coaching. So do you think it's fair to say that a, a couple of the, the skills, we'll just call them skills, that these coaches today must have is an ability to, to, to like marry the high standards and accountability with relationship and support for lack of better term. I think so. But I think, I think it would be very individualized even for sports from different sport to different sport from different levels. And there are still coaches coaching today that just have enough track record and credibility to probably do some things that other coaches coming in, you're not going to get away with it. Plain and simple. Yep. Uh, you don't have that street cred um, at this point in time. And that's just reality. And um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've talked to coaches. It's like, okay, Nick Saban can do and say some things just because of, to your point, his street cred you try to do that with your high school football team and you're going to be on the unemployment line within probably a month. You might get three months in. But yeah, that's, it's exactly right. And Nick Saban, um, I don't know that he's earned it or I don't know what the right phrase is, but that's just how the world works. Yep. And, um, you know, that awareness of kind of who you are and where you're at and the context that you're working within, you know, it all matters. But I will tell you, on that, I guess, uh, uh, in that vein, coaching not to get fired is going to get you fired. Yeah. Um, you cannot be afraid to get fired. It just, it, it's not going to work. Um, 
And I, so I guess it kind of goes back to that perspective that you have as a lifelong coach, which is, uh, there's probably going to be some bumps in the road and that's okay. Cause it happens to everybody. Yeah. It happens to Nick Saban. Yeah. So maybe the one commonality that we could look at from, from those high level coaches is just an ability to persevere and, and get through those tough times. Yeah, I would say so. And, and I think it's a great exercise for any young coach. Just go on Wikipedia and look at Nick Saban. Look at how much Nick Saban coached yep. before he got the Alabama job. Look at what Pete Carroll did before he got the USC job. You know, look at what Joe Madden did before he got the job managing the race. Yeah. Um, it's all right there. And you know, for those people, I mean, look at what John Wooden did before he ever won at UCLA, you know, uh, look at Vince Lombardi coaching high school football. So uh, I, I do think it's important to have that perspective going into it. Thanks for listening. Be on the lookout next week for part two of this three-part conversation with Andy McKay.